obviously like trading something like PTSD, like you can make a really strong case for it, right? Like that helps people. But like, what, what do you think of like the idea that like at some point in the future, we would just be able to turn off sad memories? My just, most like, fascinating job that I've ever held when I was in college was that I actually used to give uh, ghost tours so William and Mary is like, you know, your face. Um, William and so, hi, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the No Easy Answers podcast. Uh, I started this podcast because next year I'm going off to college. And while I have a general sense of the direction that I want to head in, in terms of what I want to pursue, I've been feeling a little overwhelmed by the number of opportunities that are opening up and choices that I'll have to make about my career path in the somewhat near future. And so the premise of this podcast is to invite a different guest on each episode that is working in a different profession or subject field and informally interview them about their work and about their lives more generally as well. This will serve both as a way for me and my friends to learn a little bit more about subjects that we are interested in, but maybe don't know too much about. And will also just be a fun conversation where we get to hear interesting stories from interesting people. Um, before I introduced our special guests, I also have on today with me two co-hosts, John and Max, who are also very, very special. Um, we're all seniors at Hunter College High School in New York City. Uh, but do you guys want to quickly introduce yourselves? Maybe uh, tell us like where you're planning to go to college next year and what you're thinking of studying. Yeah, so um, hi, I'm Max. I'm also a senior at Hunter College High School. Um, and next year, I plan on attending College Hand Honors College at Boston University to study biomedical engineering, um, public health, and maybe some sociology. And I'm John. I'm also a senior at Hunter College High School, and I'm planning to go to Case Western Reserve University and also study biomedical engineering. So yeah, John and Max are at least considering bio-related fields, and so they also have some background in neuroscience, so I thought they would be good guests to have on for this episode, which brings me to our main guest for today, which is Ms. Caitlin Dorst, who is a PhD candidate currently conducting research at Boston University related to the optogenetic manipulation of memory. Uh, please correct me if any of that was wrong. No, that was perfect. Um, I met Ms. Doris through a research internship program that I did this past summer, but I don't know too much about your life and work beyond the stuff that we did. Um, so we're just going to be asking you a few questions today about your research and maybe life outside of academia as well. Um, so I'll start it off with a question that falls in line with the idea of this podcast being all about figuring out what we want to do. So I was wondering... Um, at what point did you know that you wanted to become a scientist? Like, was this something that you always knew, something that you figured out more recently and or something that you're, you're still like thinking about? And what attracted you to neurobiology or more specifically the study of memory in particular? Yeah, sure. Um, so I definitely knew that I wanted to pursue science um, since middle school, actually. It's kind of uh, ironic that it started so early. I loved my biology class in eighth grade. And that was when I knew for sure that something in the life sciences was what was what I wanted to pursue. Um, but it wasn't until much later that I actually got into neuroscience. So when I was a rising high school senior, so this was a handful of years down the line, um, I actually got in contact with a scientist at uh, William and Mary, which is actually my alma mater. So um, I got selected for this internship um, 
when was it? The summer of 2012. And at the time I was thinking, oh, maybe I wanted to do biology and medicine um, and pursue maybe my MD. So I didn't really like think too much of it until I actually got into the lab. So the internship itself was roughly nine weeks, um, but it got me the exposure to a collegiate level laboratory and how to actually conduct uh, rigorous scientific work. And so that was kind of the moment where I saw myself pursuing this different um, path um, when it came to a career. So I totally pivoted from thinking that I wanted to do an MD and I actually found that I liked doing research then. And um, I actually chose to attend William and Mary to continue working into the laboratory. And um, let's see, when I got there, that's when I knew neuroscience was for me. So even though I majored in biology, uh, my school actually didn't really have um, a strong neuroscience curriculum back then. So um, I decided to keep it very broad um, to study molecular, cellular, um, evolutionary biology, and then apply it to neuroscience post-graduation. So um, I knew for sure, like after completing four years at William & Mary, I wanted to do a PhD because I just love the idea of doing research. Um, and that's where I am today, actually. So it's kind of a weird journey to figure all this out. Um, but eventually, like with the experiences that I had with time, um, I kind of stayed like to a course to a degree, but it still changed too. So, uh, yeah. So, um, in terms of my current research, like in terms of memory, I always liked the aspect of studying some sort of cognitive like disorder or neurodegenerative disease, like Alzheimer's. So I knew the component of memory had something special for me personally, um, and how memory can be affected in all these different types of disorders and diseases. So it wasn't actually what I studied in William & Mary. Um, when I came to Boston University as a graduate student, I knew memory was something that I wanted to pursue. Um, so I didn't necessarily know like how to get in um, into memory. You know, I jumped from one field of research uh, to another and so that was a little bit tricky, but I knew like along the way, like this was something that my research passion was. Um, so you mentioned that you started your lab work and experience pretty early as a rising senior in high school. Um, so I was wondering from working in a lab in high school to undergraduate and now postgraduate, um, how have your interests shifted? I know you mentioned from pursuing an MD to now neuroscience? Um, and how has your lab experience um, and outlook changed throughout these years? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, because my situation um, being in a laboratory that early is not the norm. So I've had plenty of students um, come across my way when I was still an undergraduate as well as a graduate student that come into the lab at different points in time and they still do have different uh, career trajectories and ideas. And so for me personally, I knew for sure that I wanted to be, you know, quote unquote, a scientist. But, you know, I already hit that point, you know, if you're doing research, you are a scientist. So um, a bunch of students, you know, outside of my immediate realm, like they might want the experience to kind of figure out what they want to do, uh, which is totally fine. Some students come into the lab and say, yes, research is definitely for me. Like it, it fits me, my personality, my lifestyle. 
and other students are like, oh no, this might not be for me, but having that experience under your belt will have you, you know, guide your way in deciding that. So for my personal journey, I knew research was for me because I was such a curious person. I always wanted to figure out how basic principles of neuroscience would work so that we can apply those basic principles in understanding like diseases or disorders. So for me, I had that innate curiosity where I just wanted to know how things work. And when, let's see, yeah, when I was a graduate student, that solidified that even further, you know? So I knew for sure, like this was something I wanted to do because I was so curious intellectually. And, and it's fine if that's not like what your style is. Other people wanna know about disease models, cure diseases, and those types of students would pursue an MD. Um, other students would figure out, oh, maybe I don't like how research is very like technical. You can spend like all sorts of crazy hours on it um, and would pursue something along the lines of business, you know, something that's kind of just like uh, tangential to science, but not totally like at the bench. Um, so having these experiences definitely helps figure out like professionally what you like and what you do not like. So you touched on this a bit, but I know often in academia and especially in science, um, it takes a really long time for any like novel discoveries to be made. So I was wondering, like, as an undergraduate and especially like even as a high schooler, I feel like your role in the lab would not be super like you wouldn't play a super large role in the lab. So I was wondering, like, did that ever get tedious or boring to you like obviously you're very passionate about science and what you do but yeah yeah sure that's also like a really great and important question you know because science doesn't happen in a day you know this is something that my boss even tells me now even though i'm a grad student um so when i was taking that internship for six weeks i was often found doing a lot of grunt work around the lab so you got to start somewhere, right? So at the time I was kind of bored because I was making simple solutions, cleaning and kind of just like watching from afar. Um, and that's like not fun, right? Like you want to be in there, like you want to have hands-on experience, get down and dirty. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to have the next breakthrough in science. And so that was actually a learning process for me personally. Um, so when I first started off, I was like, oh, is this all that, that there is? Like, I'm kind of bored. Like, you know, I had to have patience. So, um, everything takes time to learn, um, when it comes to the technical aspect, um, when it comes to the academic aspect of actually learning the field. Um, and so because I decided to stay in that lab when I attended William and Mary, that's when it was more like time investment to teach me the technical aspects and to get, you know, acquainted with the field. Um, so I definitely, you know, tell people it takes time to learn all of these things. And, you know, even as a graduate student, um, there are often days where nothing gets, you know, what I quote unquote accomplished. And that can kind of get someone like down and feeling bad about themselves. So um, I'm still kind of learning on how to kind of push that imposter syndrome away. Um, because when you're in academia, you are constantly learning. You know, like learning is always a process. Science is always a process. There's never really a sort of end. And even if you do figure out some sort of breakthrough that's like grounds like breaking, 
um, there is still a learning process for that. You're not done. Um, and that is actually like the exciting part too. So there's always something else left to learn and discover along the way. Yeah, so we all um, read a little bit of the research uh, stuff that you sent over and we watched the TED talk as well. So I think now is probably a good time to introduce your research. So just wondering like one, uh, for those who aren't familiar, what exactly do you research? And then also what have been your findings so far and what's like the ultimate goal uh, of you guys in your lab and what exactly is your role now as a, as a PhD student uh, in the lab? Sure, yeah. So I'll start with the um, gist of what um, our lab studies as a whole. So we are a memory lab. Um, however, there are so many different things that people can think of when someone says memory. So for us, we want to actually look at these cells and their connections within the brain that generate a particular memory. And so um, this term has been tossed around a lot. Um, the term is called engram. And so it's a very loose term. Um, so I'm going to also use it very loosely. So when I say engram, that basically means any sort of cellular ensemble and their connections within the whole entire brain. So it really is this big like black box question about where memory is actually localized in the brain. So, you know, there were so many early works back in the 1920s and 50s and so on about where exactly memory was located. Um, so we still don't know that. Um, however, we know that at least the hippocampus portion of the brain is very important in what's called episodic memory. So the memory about certain events in your life. So for my research, I want to look at particular cellular ensembles within the hippocampus and these cells and their connections in theory would be implicated in encoding the information about a given fearful event. So we have this uh, very complicated viral labeling strategy where we can inject a genetically modified virus into a mouse brain. And um, I won't go into the gory details because that's just way too complicated. Um, but the gist of this virus construct is that it can infect cells that fire action potentials when a given memory is encoded in time. So we know for sure where those memories become active um, based on where the virus is, if that makes sense. So any sort of cell that we see under a microscope we know for sure that that cell was implicated in the formation of that memory somehow. And so with the given fear memory, uh, we wanna actually reactivate that memory. So we have a light-based tool that's also encoded in that virus that acts as a sort of switch. So just as you would turn like your light on and off um, when you flick a switch, when we reactivate those cells, we use light too. So we use light to turn on cells and contrarily, we can also use light to turn off these cells. And so for me, I want to turn on those cells that encode the fear memory at a later point in time. So the prediction is if we turn on those cells that the mouse, in this case, our model organism would remember the fearful event. And so for my particular project, I wanna see how we can test the mouse's capability of eliciting different types of adaptation um, behaviors. So 
I have this kind of like really bare bones analogy. So think of this as you had a really bad breakup in a cafe, right? So now this memory of this bad breakup in a cafe is encoded within your brain. And somehow something triggers you to remember that bad breakup and you remember this cafe. So you're gonna behave differently where you are physically in space. So if you're in your room, you have really nowhere to go, you might react differently versus if you were out in public with your friends. So using the environment as a titration of how you're gonna react is kind of what we wanna measure too. So for a mouse, they really don't do much. So it's kind of hard for us to get a readout of animal behavior, but if we reactivate its fear memory when the mouse is exploring something versus when the mouse is kind of in its room, it's gonna behave differently. That's the prediction. And so that first prediction is that the mouse is gonna behave differently. Um, but the second prediction is that somehow there are underlying changes within other areas of the brain to dictate these different behavioral responses. So even though we're trying to get the mouse to remember the same situation under different demands, the brain is gonna tell the mouse to do something different each time. And so uh, we use a couple of different approaches for that aspect of the project. Um, but the whole point is to figure out how this mouse behaves in a healthy neurotypical condition so that we can apply this uh, technology to maybe a different sort of mouse model. Um, Cause this is great implications for something like PTSD, right? So if someone with PTSD is gonna remember their trauma, they're gonna behave in a bad way and not in an advantageous way. So if we understand how the neural circuits and other cells and other connections with the brain can function normally, we can make these predictions on a cellular level of how these uh, circuits can dysfunction. Um, if, yeah, if you guys have any follow-up questions for the science. Yeah, so I just wanna first say that we all have read through your research and we all found it really, really interesting and cool. Um, and I think we all have a lot of questions about it actually. Um, so I'll start off. So um, you said that a big motivation for the research that you're doing is like a possible treatment or, or handling of uh, diseases or conditions like PTSD, right? So I was just wondering, so how does understanding the relationship between like uh, different responses to to a fear memory being activated like where um, like what is the direct relationship between that and finding a treatment for PTSD right yeah that that's really like a money-making question right so because our um, model is also a mouse a lot of people also ask us about the translational value to humans so there is a lot of evolution, like similarity between mice and humans. So we can make these um, assumptions that a lot of brain areas function in the same way. Um, and so in our mouse model, if we can find any sort of dysfunction within the engram or dysfunction within other um, brain areas that are um, manipulated by reactivating the fear memory, then we could assume that this would hold true for humans as well, um, based on the functional similarity between many brain regions. 
So it's really hard to get a pulse on that because our manipulations go directly within the brain. Um, so obviously we can't do this with humans because of ethical concerns, but the whole point is to get that basic knowledge of what exactly is the brain telling the body to do. And we can make these inferences to see if we can observe this in humans at least. And so a lot of the scientific literature um, does support the notion that a lot of brain um, areas and brain circuits are the same. So for the whole like translational value, um, we can make predictions um, and we could even go further to do some sort of, um, I don't wanna use the term preclinical, but preclinical in air quotes, um, treatments in mice to also make these predictions that it would also work in humans. I just wanted to ask one more big question and then John and Max, you guys can ask your questions. But um, so with this type of technology, obviously uh, treatment of PTSD would be incredible if we could somehow create that with this technology. But it seems like there could, the, the possibilities of this type of technology are endless. So like, I was wondering, what is your ideal creation with this type of memory altering technology? Like, obviously, there's so many ethical and philosophical ramifications of this type of technology. But in your ideal world, what would this be used for? Yeah, so um, obviously, the ethical implications of at least like the technology that we use, obviously, it can't be a one to one like translational thing. Um, but like I said earlier, we can probably make inferences, right? So at least in the case of PTSD, each case is different, right? So what type of treatment would work for someone with PTSD would look so different all across the board. Um, however, with our like technology, I would hope that um, there are similarities when it comes to um, at least like not directly within the brain, but there are cases of deep brain stim. Um, transcranial stim that have like worked in some cases. So I would hope that at least like with our technology, we can partner with maybe like biomedical engineers to kind of uh, communicate with each other to see like how we can develop technology within ethical guidelines to kind of do a similar thing with humans. So at least in our work, we turn memories on but also in the case, like you can do the opposite and turn memories off. So there is hope. I can imagine that we can do something similar in humans, but again, like with ethics coming into play, um, we want to make sure that we do this in an efficacious and ethical way. So um, I guess with treatments that are coming in online with like sub, you know, clinical doses of ketamine, for example, are coming in, um, the pipeline right now. So this might have implications of treating a lot of depression and anxiety disorder in extreme cases where other uh, cognitive or other behavioral therapies aren't possible. Um, so hoping we can bridge um, between like the two realms of like animal research and human research to kind of just find the most like advantageous tool right now. Yeah. Um I think many of the effects that we're talking about, about like memory altercation, um, sound very similar to the effects of drugs that are currently being prescribed to people with anxiety, um, like Xanax. Um, and I think right now there's currently a stigma related to these drugs um, due to like potential for abuse. 
Um, so I was wondering what benefits would, if we were somehow to make um, these optogenetic memory altercations into like a therapeutic treatment, um, what benefits would this have over our current uses of treatment like drugs um, on altering memories and treatment? Yeah, so I can imagine it would be slightly less addictive than certain drugs. Um, but again, with stigma, you know, um, certain prescription drugs are still very advantageous to use um, within the realm of like your doctor prescribing, of course. So at least like with our tools and technology, if someone might be, you know, let's say feeling like really anxious or heightened and like, oh, this memory is coming back, it's becoming invasive in the case of PTSD you know, in like a sci-fi film, maybe you can like click a button and have like the light come on into your brain and turn the memory off. And then you're probably totally fine. So that would be like the most sci-fi answer um, I can think of is kind of like men in black, but in reverse. Actually, no, it's exactly like men in black. So you shine the light and you forget the memory, right? So um, very Hollywood-esque, but I can imagine, um, this technology would probably be slightly less addictive than pharmaco uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, but again, it really depends on like the actual state of like the human being, right? So there might not be any sort of like addictive properties to something like this, but I can imagine this potentially being used and abused as well. So you gotta think about the good and the bad with this case. Um, I had like a follow-up question to that. In the, the TED talk, I believe it talked about um, being able in the like the example of the ex-girlfriend being able to take a, take away the like the breakup memory, but keep the memory of the person itself. And in these cases of like PTSD, like do you see this like the findings of this work if it goes like all well soon? Um, do you see it being like removed? Do you see the potential to be more like a like a surgical like type of thing of being able to somehow remove these pathways between like the negative? Uh, parts of the brain like the negative um, responses that come from these memories or do you see it as being more of like with the like engineering aspect and creating like some sort of device or something like that that can inhibit these memories in the same way that you're able to trigger on or off memories in the mice yeah that's a really good question um so our brains are actually really good at rewriting stuff so it's kind of like playing a game of telephone where you're in a circle and you somehow like pass down a message multiple times. So in the same way, as if you are recalling a memory again and again, certain aspects are being rewritten. So a lot of cognitive behavioral therapists actually use this in the context of exposure therapy. So in the example in that TED talk, um, you go to the cafe again and nothing bad happens, right? So you expose yourself again and again to the context at which you experience this bad situation. And ultimately like this fear memory is gonna like become silenced. But it is also possible for that fear memory to come online again and reinstate. So our brains just naturally do this. So when it comes to technology, this is where interventions can come into play. So with the whole like turning on and turning on, uh, off these memories, it is like very possible to, um, you know, just completely abolish it, but it becomes increasingly difficult if you want to separate aspects. Um, so the brain pathways that do this are still kind of fuzzy um, because there are like so many different things that come into a play of an episodic memory, right? So you have the emotions that you feel, the experiences that you see, hear, feel, um, et cetera, 
And how do you dissociate that? So within the engram level, we don't know exactly which cells have the information of the person. So it's kind of hard to kind of eliminate those while keeping the other cells that encode everything else intact. Um, so this is uh, where we're really lacking in terms of the resolution of um, the technology that we have to find these cells that encode the particular aspects of a memory. We just assume that it's just packaged and tied in a bow as a whole. But we know that at least like certain areas, like let's just say the amygdala, for example, is very implicated in the emotional aspect of an experience. So when you walk into the cafe and experience that breakup, your amygdala is going to fire kind of like crazy because you're experiencing like grief, sadness, maybe anger. Um, and so that would be a good example um, candidate brain area to take a look at um, and possibly manipulate. So um, when the memory is already there, it might be a little bit hard to find, um, you know, where exactly you can tease out the different information but maybe as it's happening in real time, there might be some sort of interventions that you can kind of just tell your amygdala to like quiet down. It's not that bad, right? Um, so it is possible to um, interfere with that formation of the memory, but it, come, it becomes a lot harder to kind of retrain your brain uh, cognitively as well as with technology. So this is more of a... I guess, philosophical question than a scientific one. But even nowadays with current medicine and technology, there's a lot of people that say like medicine or vaccines are, you know, messing with nature. And this is just such an extreme version of that. Like, you must expect a lot of backlash with the use of this technology. What do you have to say? Like, what's your opinion on that? What would you say to people that don't think this is ethical or any any use of this is ethical? Yeah. Oh, totally. I get that often. And especially uh, my parents kind of tease me about that aspect too. And, sh and they're like, oh, what's the point? Um, and so that that's when it ultimately comes down to, right? So what is the point of doing all of this? Um, so obviously the ethics, like we have to go with ethical guidelines as instituted by like the institution. So even though we work with animals, like there are strict ethical guidelines that we adhere to it. Um, Ooh, excuse me. Um, and um, we do like, it, it's kind of funny for me. Like I actually thank my mice, like once the experiment is done and the whole point though, even though I work with mice is just to understand something that we didn't know previously. So, you know, it's cliche, but it's true that knowledge is power, right? So as we learn how the brain works, we can apply that knowledge to better, you know, human health and human like standard of living. So even though like we are a memory lab, like our memory focuses on cells and cells within mice. So it is very far removed from like the whole human aspect, but understanding like the basic knowledge of how things work will ultimately help us in the long run and how understanding like how our brains work. So um, it is kind of just like this, like, gymnastics that I have to go through with people <laughs> when they ask me about like the ethical implications and uh, you know especially mice versus humans and yeah it, it, it can get a little bit like tedious explaining all of that um, but the whole point is for science like we're not 
these like crazy psychopaths that like somehow like dissect mouse brains for a hobby. So there is a whole point and a whole purpose of it. And we do operate within the ethical guidelines that is instituted by, you know, the local like Boston University level, as well as the National Institute of Health. Um, so we make sure that we operate, you know, as we should be. Uh, Max or John, do you guys have any more questions about her research in particular? I have uh, one more question. <clears throat> um, I think something that's like been gaining a lot of traction on like social media and stuff that like is becoming a big thing is Elon Musk's like Neuralink kind of technology. And that's like very far from coming to fruition. But I think that the whole idea of being able to manipulate human brains and his, his way would be through like the electrical aspect of the brain is becoming like much bigger. And then also with uh, the key like component for, for your experiments is like chenorhodopsin and that operates through light. And obviously you like the mouse has to have that thing on its head. And it's like, you probably, it, it's probably hard to actually like use that in a human being because then you can't really take that, that device off your head. So like, do you see at some point a merger of like the idea of like trying to alter the brain and alter the way it works through the electrical side of it? Cause that's kind of a more tangible, I think, idea for us to like be able to like think about cause like everything's on electricity and stuff like that. So it's a little bit easier to comprehend, um, especially with the chenorhodopsin being kind of an obstacle in the future on humans do you see that like those two kind of technologies these two different ways of altering the brain kind of combining or do you think that like the the electrical ideas that are behind the the neuralink are kind of a little too far-fetched for for this particular uh application oh no i totally think um something like that is very feasible um so a, a lot of stuff in the pipeline at least from my knowledge right now um, it, it is possible to do both the electrical um, as well as the optical to verify that the electrical works. So um, that's been, I think that's been done before. And another hot button that's like becoming increasingly prevalent in the literature is actually um, acoustic and ultrasound. So in this case, you don't even need to stick anything in the head um, unless you want to get this very like small thing up to a cell um, but you could just use sound and you can just use pulses um, of, yeah, just some um, ultrasound and uh, reactivate or inhibit certain areas of the brain. So that those uh, tools are very new for my understanding. Um, so in this case, like you don't even need the optical anymore. Um, so I predict maybe um, something like chanorodopsin, even though it won't be possible in humans, you can see something down the line of... Um, at least right now we have deep brain stimulation, but even further down the line, maybe something with ultrasound. Um, so that's something that's become um, an increasingly hot button uh, technology uh, development that's in the works for my understanding. So um, I want to transition a bit from your research to more of you as a scientist. Um, so obviously determining the physical forms of memory is a developing field. Um, so what's your reaction to seeing this kind of cutting edge sci-fi type research being done? Um, it's like when you see a mouse and you change its memory with the push of a button, what's your gut reaction? Do you feel empowered, awed, scared, confused? 
all of the above, honestly. <laughs> um, it is like, um, I do remember when I first um, interacted with my boss and he gave a talk and I saw like his video and I'm like, oh, this is actually really cool. Um, but when I sit down with it, the more and more I think about it, um, the more like concerned I become, um, not just the scientific aspect of, you know, translating these findings from like mice to humans, but also the implication of, you know, this can be like pretty messy stuff um, that could be, like I said, used and abused. Um, and it, it, as well as like, it has like the value of like helping human life, you know? So it's this like mixed bag of feelings that I have, um, especially the more that I'm involved with in the lab. Um, so I personally feel empowered because I really do think like humanity as a whole is like much better than it is worse. So um, it is really cool to kind of think about that, you know, we can toy around with memory in a sense um, with the intention of making it better for us, right? So that is um, super empowering for me to see like, okay, like we're trying to figure out how memory works now, maybe in 10, 15, 20 years down the line, we'll have something that's like in the works for humans as well. So, um, you know, being on the foreground right now and figuring out how this works mechanistically is very exciting. Um, but again, it's always like in the back of my mind, it's just like, oh, there might be people that would take advantage of this for the worse. Um, so I think it is a very like small population of people. Like I generally think that people have like good intentions for the most part. Um, but as scientists though, we gotta be, you know, always thinking about like the implications of our work for good and for bad. It doesn't matter what field of science that you're in. Um, you know, if you're a climate scientist, like if you're a, you know, soil chemist or something like that, like there are ramifications for your work. Um, and so if you were to, you know, publish your scientific findings, like how, who is going to pick up those findings and what are they going to do with it? Right. So your career lasts as long as you choose it to be, um, but the implications of your work can have like ramifications down the line. Um, so I'm always very cautiously optimistic, um, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, like there are good and bad things for the work that at least like I'm doing for sure. And definitely what other people are doing too. Okay, sorry, just one more question about your research. And then move on to some more, I guess, like bi biographical questions. Um, so going back to the thing you said about, you know, the whole point of science and, and doing research is ultimately to make society better and to, to raise the standard of living and make people happier, right? So I was wondering, like, obviously, like treating something like PTSD, like you can make a really strong case for it, right? Like that helps people. But like, what what do you think of like the idea that like at some point in the future we would just be able to turn off sad memories just like wouldn't that make the world you know a better place like like what are your what are your thoughts on that or maybe not even like just turn off sad memories or like just for less serious psychological disorders like a treatment for that with this type of technology yeah so um you know, I, I definitely think that there is weight to what we do when it comes to manipulating memories. Um, so at least like down the line for treatment, um, there is like, 
I guess like a really great understanding of like, oh, like if we're going to just like eliminate sad memories, like we're totally going to eliminate sadness as an emotion. Um, and, and I don't think that's necessarily true um, because you do kind of need all these like emotions um, to be who you are as a human being, right? So we evolve these emotions over time and these complex feelings for a reason, right? So if we just somehow everyone has like a switch to turn off something sad, like, will we like adapt to that? Um, biologically speaking, I, yeah, that's, that's kind of like a really like deep question about like how humans will evolve with time with the use of this technology. So it like, I guess like in a very like philosophical sense, like do we lose our sense of humanity if we can just, you know, get rid of the bad memories and only keep the good ones. So again, like that brings me back to like the cautious optimism and how like the work won't be misconstrued in these senses. So at least like with something like a treatment, it would only be hopefully used for extreme cases. So maybe extreme cases of PTSD would probably be more beneficial than something like, oh, I feel sad, let me just turn it off, right? Um, so I think like, at least like for the ramifications of what we do, I do hope that it's like limited just within that context of, you know, if nothing else else works, just turn it off. Got you. Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that. I, I think probably everyone draws the line at a different point, but I think if we get to the point where you could just basically alter your reality or your memory that would become kind of like i don't know if you've seen the show black mirror but black mirror-esque and ultimately i don't think that would be a good thing for society um uh, do you guys have any more questions about or is just because all right john <laughs> yeah, I, had, I had one more <laughs> sorry um but you, you talked about like a lot about like the ethical ramifications of, re of the research and especially in your field of ne neurology and i believe it, me and max took a, a neurology class um, on the weekends and they, they talked about how it was like one of the fastest expanding fields and how it's like we've learned so much in like just the kind of like the past 50 years we've gone from like such a limited knowledge base to now, now being able to like manipulate memory and all this type of stuff do you have you seen like the, the ethics at least through your time in research like kind of changing is the ethics kind of keeping up with with the research and like do you see like any like I guess, disparity between the speed of how much the, the field is expanding and how much we're learning about the brain so quickly and the thought for like the ethical ramifications of everything and the ethical like running of labs and all that kind of stuff. And then especially as like we, we you continue to do this kind of research and eventually it's going to have to become further than mice and onto like another species, either closer to human or actual humans. Yeah, that that is a really like deep and like thought-provoking um very excellent question for like the field as a whole um so neuroscience is like one of the newest fields right so you can just chuck a rock back a century and that's just like where a lot of like novel neuroscience has actually birthed from and um you look back and how those experiments were carried out back then would definitely not be okay now um which is a good thing to think about so back then, um, the, you know, the catch all is that, you know, they did think it was ethical back in the day. 
um, until, you know, you get something like a Nuremberg trials where, you know, you have this committee sit down and be like, okay, this is clearly not okay. Like we have to establish these more strict ethical guidelines that people have to adhere by. And, you know, looking over like the subsequent decades, I do think that neuroscience has been better about that um, when it comes to enforcing these guidelines, especially at, um, within the national level at the National Institute of Health, um, as well as institution-based. Um, so we have a lot of these um, strict guidelines that come into play um, when it comes to conducting the work that we're doing. Um, and so looking forward, um, because there's this rapid evolution of technology, I would imagine that um, the ethics has to evolve with it as well. So you have this like new tool, like new big fancy pants microscope that you can plant in like an animal or human. You have to have some sort of approval to use it before you actually go and use it. So there are um, administrative hurdles that are in place for a good thing, um, in my opinion, um, that limits us and what we can actually do ethically. Um, but like you said, like technology is like evolving really quickly. And I do think that the uh, ethics have to evolve with it as well. So down the line, when it comes to memory manipulation, um, you know, a lot of researchers are trying to take this into um, non-human primates. So it hasn't taken off yet. Um, that's because like, we wanna make sure that it really is ethically viable that we can actually do this. Um, so the implications are there obviously to better human you know, society and well-being, blah, blah, blah. Um, however, I don't think that we're there yet where we can just go full throttle and just like manipulate memory in every single creature that we can like get our hands on. So um, we're not there yet. And then down the line, you know, the question is, are we going to get there? Um, and that's something I'm not actually sure about. Yeah, so um, I had a question about, I guess, the ethical guidelines that you have to follow and, and your opinion on if like the ends justify the means. But and I'm sure Max and John have more questions. But for the sake of time, um, we're going to move on to like, more lighthearted questions about your life and stuff. So um, if you weren't a scientist, what do you think you would be doing instead? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, I always, like, I have this, like, funny, like, pet dream. Like, if I wasn't in science at all, like, I'd honestly be running, like, a bridal gown studio because, like, those, like, girly girl, like, say yes to the dress shows and, like, wedding fashion is somehow, like, my random jam. So it's funny, like, I was actually asked this by my current partner. And I'm like, yeah, totally wedding dresses. And that's just such a left field answer for me. But it's fun. Yeah. Um, also, I see that you've definitely thought the like ethical questions in your research as well. So in the alternate re like reality, where you weren't a scientist, you weren't a bridal gown designer, um, would you see yourself maybe pursuing like the ethics of medicine through law or policymaking or philosophy? I definitely would think so. Like I've had these like uh, talks with my like lab mates and like science friends. And we kind of sit here and like commiserate over like a beer and, you know, we would say, oh, like our projects like suck, like, or, you know, we would have like bad days and be like, wow, wouldn't it be interesting if we were in like policy or, you know, business administration. But for me, like I get so fired up about like ethics 
and stuff like that, I would totally see myself like going down that route, um, possibly like, you know, getting a JD or something like that. And like studying like bioethics, I think would have been like, if I can go back and redo college, like that'd probably be something I would do. Uh, besides being a bridal gown connoisseur, um, do you have any favorite like random hobbies that kind of maybe not a lot of people know about you or just is something completely unrelated to science? Oh man. So I've had a bunch of odd jobs, um, when I was in college. So, um, I started off as a Starbucks barista for a year that kind of, you know, piddled out because customers are the worst, but my most fascinating job that I've ever held when I was in college was that I actually used to give uh, ghost tours. So William and Mary is like, you know, your face. Uh, William and Mary is actually a very old campus. Um, it's the second oldest institution behind Harvard. So we kind of brag about that to this day. And like a lot of the buildings are haunted. And so for money, I used to give um, a lot of like local tourists a bunch of tours like around the college and the surrounding area because Williamsburg is actually very old as well. So that was like the most like interesting like side hustle that I ever had in college. Were there a lot of ghosts? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, um, the company that I worked for um, would give out like EMFs. So like any, like if you hold it by like a lamp or something like that, it would go off. But I, I feel so bad. Like I totally knew this and I totally tricked all the tourists and <laughs> I would just give them these EMFs and be like, oh, you got to let me know when it's going off because that would mean that there's a ghost nearby and they totally bought it. And I feel really bad, but I don't because they tip me really well. Uh, I guess a question I have um, in general is if you could give advice to like an incoming freshman in the STEM world, like what do you think would be like the best stuff to do or stuff to make sure to do your first year? Oh, wow. That's like such a favorite question of mine um, because I have mentored a bunch of undergraduates as well. Um, so for those that are incoming, you know, you're coming into this like new chapter of your life, which is very cliche to say, but it's true. Um, it's okay not to have a set plan. So if you come in like thinking you might do one thing and then somehow finding yourself liking something else, you know, go with your gut. Um, because if you find that you, some, you like something else that wasn't what you intended to do, that's okay. Um, because in the long run, you're going to be happier pursuing like your interests versus something that you think is predetermined for you. Um, and, and I see this a lot, you know, not to scare you, Max, about BU. Um, a lot of undergraduates, especially the ones that I mentored in the lab, like come in thinking that they might want to do one thing. And then after a couple of years of mentorship, they're like, oh, just kidding. Like, I want to like do something totally different. So it's okay if you do have a plan, like structure is great. Um, but don't like freak out if those plans change, embrace it. Yeah. Um, thank you for the advice. Um, <laughs> personally, as someone who will be studying in Boston next year, um, I was wondering if you might be able to talk a bit about how your experience, um, both as a researcher and as a person has been impacted by living in the Boston community. Um, specifically being in such close proximity with other like-minded scientists, institutions, um, like Fenway Park, um, and just like Boston in general? 
Yeah, I love being in Boston. Um, so at least like for the undergraduate, I was at William and Mary, which was a total different vibe. Um, but I knew for sure I wanted to land in Boston um, for the reason of being like around a bunch of institutions, um, academics, industry, just because science is such a great place um, for being in Boston. Um, you really can't go wrong. Like there's just so much to collaborate with scientifically. Um, so there's just so much to pursue um, when it comes to science in Boston. But also, like you said, Fenway Park is down the street. So I've had an office with a view of the park and I can tell where there's a game. And I'm like, oh, okay, like, let me grab a couple of buddies. Like we can just go to Fenway, grab a beer or whatever. This is probably you know, you guys are too young, but, <laughs> um, you know, like having a social life outside of science is just as important in my opinion. So, um, even though it's like great, like for science, it's also great to be like a person, um, and like have a life outside of science. Like I definitely also another piece of advice, tell people to have balance. And I know that's easier said than done. So, um, you know, having things to do is another great place that Boston um, does. It has like an aquarium, it has like museums, obviously Fenway. Um, I've gone to so many concerts on like a random Tuesday or Thursday. Um, so it, there really is so much to do outside of science where you don't find yourself in a lab constantly. And that to me is just as important as doing great science. Yeah, so uh, I think we're going to wrap up soon, but I'll just ask you one final question that is pretty similar to what John asked you before. But what um, if you could go back in time uh, to, you know, your first day of college, what is something you would do differently? Um, and like, what's your biggest regret, I guess? Gosh, yeah, there are a couple. Um <laughs> it's so funny how we talk about like deleting memories. I'm like, Oh yeah, there's a couple of college memories I would like to erase. Um, but if I could go back and redo college, um, I probably would have looked at study abroad. I know this is like very like tangential, but you know, I often found myself in the lab constantly and like over the summer, that was when I was always in the lab. Um, so I really wish that I branched out a little bit more and did something like a summer abroad. Um, just to have like a more like, I don't want to say like wholesome experience. I definitely think college was great for me and I did a lot. Um, so I would probably spend less time in the lab and more time like out of the lab. I know this is like, so like backwards <laughs> in terms of what I've been saying this whole podcast, but, um, like I said, it's all about balance, right? So, uh, study abroad would have been something I would have liked to do.